Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you in the overflow and, uh, of course, those of you at the Franklin campus. If you're a guest today, I want you to understand that this worship service that you're participating in is more spread out than you know. We have folks worshiping with us at this moment in the overflow here at the campus at Woodburn. We also have a Franklin campus. We have another satellite congregation that meets about nine miles up the road. So when I look at the camera, when I talk about Franklin, there, there are real people, and you need to know that as a guest. Understand that the the worship service you're a part of is a little bigger than you know, and we're excited about that. God bless you, Pastor Eric, and all of you at Franklin. We love you so much. Still in the sermon series entitled Little Books, so take your Bibles and open up this morning to the little book of 2 John. It's in the New Testament. Actually, if you go to the book of Revelation at the very end and just thumb back, you'll pass the book of Jude and then the three little books of John. Second and third John are the smallest books in the whole Bible. Uh, In my Bible, I can see them page by page, second John and third John. Take a look in your Bible. Uh, Tell me, which one do you think is the smallest book in the Bible, second John or third John? What do you say? What's the shortest book in the whole Bible? It's one of these two, second John or third John. Okay, we'll take a vote. How many of you say 2 John? Yeah. How many of you say 3 John? Yeah. Who said 3 John? Now you're backing up. Louise uh, and Neil Balance, you are correct. You are correct. There are more verses in 3 John, more verses in 3 John, but there are more words in 2 John. So 3 John is officially the the shortest book in the whole Bible. 2 John is right there. It has fewer verses, uh, but again, it uh, it, it has more words. 2 John is is a wonderful, wonderful book in in Scripture, and it it is short, but the message is important for us today. Uh, There are a a few things about the book that are are interesting. First, let's just start reading right at the beginning. This letter is from John the Elder. I am writing to the chosen lady and to her children whom I love in the truth. Who's he talking to? The chosen lady and her children. Honestly, we don't know. We don't even know. Actually, most people have come to the conclusion that he's not talking to a particular woman at all. Not a woman and her children, but maybe what? A church. Yeah, exactly. That John is using the language of a woman uh, in order to talk about the whole church. She's she's a, a wonderful grand lady with children. He's probably talking about a church in the same way that, that Scripture talks about the whole church as the bride of Christ. So you see, probably John is writing this letter to a church, but he calls the church a lady, a grand lady with children. Again, some believe he's writing to an actual woman, and that might be the case. I tend to believe it's a church because of the last verse, verse 13. Greetings from the children of your sister chosen by God. That to me sounds like an exchange between two churches, a sister church exchanging greetings with, with, with another church that is dearly loved. And so I do believe that Second John is, is a letter to a church and, of course, bringing greetings from a sister church. I guess part of the point is we can disagree about that. Uh, We don't know. The only thing we know is what we find in in this small book, and and there's not enough to let us know with any kind of certainty, which is just a reminder in Scripture. There are some things we can know for sure, and the things we know for sure we should preach with certainty. But there are other things that we cannot know, and the things we cannot know we should preach with humility. And that brings us to 2 John. The, The issue in 2 John false teachers, and let's listen to what the Word of God says. Again, from the beginning, Second John, verse 1. This letter is from John the Elder. 
I'm writing to the chosen lady and to her children whom I love in the truth as does everyone else who knows the truth because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. If you have a pen, underline those words. The truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Very important words. Grace, mercy, and peace which come from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. Verse 4. How happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded. I'm writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us. And he has commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into this world They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Stop right there, antichrist. It's a very popular word and one that we hear all the time when people are talking about the end times. And I appreciate and understand that. But just recognize a little little piece of information here. The word antichrist only appears right here and in the book of 1 John. Nowhere else in Scripture do you find the word Antichrist. It's not even in the book of Revelation. And when John uses the word Antichrist, he's usually talking about false teachers. And he often uses it in a plural way. I just want you to understand that. This word is John's word. And he's usually talking about false teachers, as he does right here. Such a person is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we had worked so hard to achieve. Be diligent. So that you receive your full reward. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. But anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. I have much more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink. I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. Greetings from the children of your sister, chosen by God. Years ago, Casey and I had just gotten married. I was working as youth minister for Woodburn Baptist Church. We were living in Nutterville in Bowling Green. I had just started seminary. There was a lot going on for us, and I was young and quite stupid. One afternoon, uh, actually before Casey even got home, there was a knock on the door, and I answered the door, and at the door were standing two very, very young men, younger than I was at the time. These were uh, kids to me, really. They were 19-year-old boys. Standing at my door with white shirts on, ties, big badges, bicycles. Who were they? They were Mormon missionaries, absolutely. Mormon missionaries. Uh, I invited them in. It was something about their youth. It was something about looking at those boys and being a youth minister. I, I realized quickly that these young men were just out of high school, and they were just out of high school. 
These young Mormon men put their life on hold so that they could go on a two-year mission for their church. And a lot of Mormon young people do this. They are raised to do this. And it's actually rather interesting and important when you think about it. I can hardly imagine, nothing against our teenagers, but I can hardly imagine many of our teenagers canceling college, not dating, not getting married, taking two years of their life simply to serve the church. But that's what Mormons do. And understand, they pay their own way. They pay their own way. The way you save for college for your children, the Mormons save for their children's mission. It's more important than college. So I'm facing these young men who are the same age as the seniors who have just left my youth group. And honestly, I really had a soft place in my heart for them. One especially, his name was Jason Fulmer. We introduced ourselves, and he said, hi, I'm Elder Jason Fulmer. The other guy introduced himself. I don't remember his name. I said, well, my my name is Tim Harris. May I call you Jason? Jason said, sure. His partner went, ugh. He said, no, I'm sorry. Call me Elder Jason Fulmer. Obviously, Jason was the new kid. He was a little bit new and not quite yet onto the script for Mormon missionaries. I invited them, and I said, can I get you something to drink? They said, water would be fine. And so I brought them a glass of water, and we started to talk. We started to talk. I was very, very upfront with them. I said, I'm a Christian. I'm a very serious Christian. I'm a student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I'm a Baptist minister. You should know that up front. Elder Jason Fulmer said, well, as a matter of fact, I love Baptist hymns. We sing a lot of Baptist hymns in my Mormon church. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, I love the hymn because I have been given much. I said, my goodness, I love that hymn too, and I do. I love that hymn. We had that in common right from the start. They said, well, well, listen, Tim, this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to come back and talk to you over several conversations, over several weeks. Would you invite us back? I said, sure, sure, you can come. And we agreed to an afternoon, we agreed to a day of the week, and for five sessions they continued to come back to my house. At the end of that very first session, very interestingly, they said, let's have a prayer together. Tim, would you lead us in prayer? I said, sure, I'll pray. And I prayed. I prayed to Jesus. I prayed for them. I prayed for myself. I prayed for our conversations. When it was over, Elder Jason looked at me and said, I had a very good feeling when you prayed. I I really sensed the Holy Spirit when you prayed. I thought we were making progress. We're going to make some progress. There's hope for these boys. They feel the Holy Spirit when I pray. As they left, they left me a book of Mormon. Elder Jason told me that the passage that he'd really like for me to read before he got back. Oh, I read more than he asked me to read before he got back. The next week, they came to the door. It was this time Elder Jason and another guy, an older man this time, and they came, and I think they pulled out the older guy because I was some sort of Baptist seminary student. They were ready for me. Elder Jason came in and sat down. He said, did you read in the Book of Mormon? I said, as a matter of fact, I did. He said, what would you think? I said, well, I couldn't help but notice that, that there are whole passages of the book of Isaiah. I mean, like 21 chapters of the whole book of Isaiah are just plastered right in the book of Mormon. I mean, in that sense, it's like reading the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament. It's the book of Isaiah. 
I said, but the other stuff, I, I just don't know. See, the thing about the Book of Mormon is it tells things you never heard before. Stories about the lost tribes of Israel, which as it turned out, came to the New World, uh, United States. So the American Indians are actually a lost tribe of Israel, and Jesus appeared to them. And if you don't believe me, there are pictures of it. Yeah, pictures in the Book of Mormon of Jesus appearing. And I said, honestly, guys, um, I can't argue with that because I can't prove that one way or the other, but I find it highly unlikely your, your picture's notwithstanding. I find that unlikely. But didn't you have a good feeling when you were reading the Book of Mormon? Didn't you feel the Holy Spirit? I can't say that I did. I said, I really can't say that I felt anything special reading the Book of Mormon. We had that whole second conversation, and as they were leaving, Elder Jason said to me, he said, you know, we have such a good feeling when we're here with you. We always feel the Holy Spirit when we're here with you. And they left, ready to come back the third time. I started catching on. I started catching on. The next time they came, Elder Jason came to the door. And honestly, I was glad to see him. I, I love this guy. I still think about this guy, Jason Fuller. He came in, and, and I said, Elder Jason, I want to ask you a question. Every time you're with me, you say you feel the Holy Spirit when we're together, but, but I noticed that when you leave, you think you take the Holy Spirit with you, don't you? You keep talking about the Holy Spirit when we're together, but honestly, you think you bring the Holy Spirit and he leaves with you. And he said, yeah. Yeah. From there, the conversations got a little more difficult. All the way up to the final conversation, which was the full-blown plan of salvation, plan of Mormon salvation. Elder Jason Fulmer brought a whole bunch of pictures, because by this time he knew I was an artist, he knew I liked art. So he brought pictures of the plan of salvation for, for Mormons. He laid out the whole thing, picture by picture, all across the floor in my living room. You know, from the very beginning, he introduced himself as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He continued to talk about Jesus, and he continued to use words I was familiar with. He talked about God the Father a lot. But in that particular day, when they were giving me the big spill, the big sell, they were giving me the plan of salvation, I listened, and then they said, what do you think? I said, I find it very curious that you call yourself a church of Jesus Christ, but in your whole plan of salvation, you never even mentioned his name. They never mentioned Jesus' name. Interesting. Second John is written to the church about false teachers. Apparently, in John's day, there were already many false teachers. And I want you to understand, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Remember, this is John. This is John who had been a disciple of Jesus. This is John, an eyewitness to the crucifixion and the resurrection. He was there. I'm telling you, there are lots of people who are still alive who saw Jesus and heard Jesus teach. And what I'm saying is, so quickly, within the first generation of the church, very quickly, while there are still people around who can give you firsthand testimony about what Jesus said and did, already there are people walking around with the message confused. Within the first generation, there were already people who were going around among the Christian churches, already going around using the same words, talking about Jesus, talking about salvation and sin, and talking about the cross, but already they were preaching a very different kind of message, a very different gospel. 
And it was alarming to those like John. And it's still alarming to those of us who love the truth and love the gospel. It really should concern you what some people teach. In our day and age, the false teachers are are everywhere. They're on TV. They're almost anywhere where they can manage to draw a crowd and ask for money. So often in our day and time, the motivation for false teachers seems to be money. And if they can turn the message of Jesus in any way to make it more profitable for them, they will. And surely you're smart enough to spot that from a mile away in the fog. If, if the bottom line message is send me money, you're looking at a guy who is off track. Now, false teachers are, are everywhere. Of course, in John's day, in, in this early day, the false teachers weren't on TV or they weren't podcasting. Do you understand? that They didn't have that ability to broadcast like that. The only way to get their message out was to travel. And so they traveled from church to church, from home to home. And, and there's the key. In John's day, if you're traveling, you can't just pile up in a holiday inn. You can't go to a Motel 6. There's nowhere to stay. There are no Stucky's restaurants along the road. No McDonald's. There's nothing like that. If you're traveling, you have to depend upon hospitality. If you're on the road in any way, shape, or form, you've got to find somebody who lets you come and stay in their house at night. It was the only way to survive in that day and age. So these traveling preachers of all kinds would travel from church to church, and when they would get to the church, they would count on somebody taking them home. Somebody would have to take them home. Somebody would have to feed them. Somebody would probably have to give them a little bit of pocket money for the journey ahead. It's simply the way it worked. It's the only way it could work. And this is the whole message of John's letter. This is what he's saying. He writes to the church, this wonderful lady with her children, it's the church, and he writes to her and he says, listen, first off, I want you to love one another, but second of all, I want you to understand that you don't just walk in love, you must walk in truth. You must walk in truth. And there are many out there who do not walk in the truth. They don't believe the truth. They don't teach and preach the truth. I want you to learn to recognize them, John says, and when you see them, Don't support them. It's a simple message. When the false teacher comes to your church, don't let him in. Don't let the false preacher come to your church. Don't let him preach. Don't let him teach. And certainly, don't support him financially. Don't let him come to your house. Don't feed him at your table. Do not support the false teacher. This is the message of 2 John. You have to learn to recognize the truth from the false. Most amazing thing about the Christian message, and this is the part that most all of us agree on, is the part about love. John says, the first word out of his mouth is love. I, I, I've met some of the members of your church. I've met some of your children, and I'm so pleased that they walk in the truth and that they walk in love. For John, everything boils down to walking in love and walking in truth. We have to love one another, John says. The message of Jesus is always a message of love. There's no way to talk about Jesus and not talk about love. And there's no way to be a follower of Jesus in the world and not be a person who is known for your love. Love has everything to do with the gospel. It's always about love. 
Now, I love that, and I love how love comes first for John because it always should come first for all of us. We're supposed to be a people of love. We're supposed to be a people of love. If we stopped right now and passed a microphone around at, at either campus, I promise you, we could find people on every pew who could tell you some horrible story about how some church they were once involved in hurt them. They can tell you some story about how a church that failed to love, and it's always a horrible story. It's always painful. It's hard to imagine a worse kind of betrayal than to be betrayed by those who call themselves God's people, who call themselves Christians. Because intuitively, we all know that if you take the name of Christ, you're going to be an extraordinary kind of loving person. Jesus and love go together. So please, that your children walk in love. And I'm telling you, still, as we look across the churches, the one thing that pleases God more than anything else are when the churches walk in love. We have to love one another. We have to love the world. We cannot fail to love one another. Of course we're going to make mistakes. Of course we're going to hurt one another's feelings. We're human. And as human beings, we don't get to experience perfect love. Perfect love belongs only to God, only to Christ himself. What we have is imperfect, but it still ought to feel and smell like love to the world. Do you know what I'm saying? They still ought to know that deep down in our hearts we love them. I've told you as pastor several times, and I'll continue to say to you, I, I love you. As pastor, I use the language of love a lot. I really do love all of you. Even those who, of you who are guests, you're thinking, you don't even know me. I'm telling you, I love you. It probably helps that I don't know you. Did you understand? <laughs> I, I really do love. I, I do. But I also tell you, and, and you can just take this to the bank, I'm going to make mistakes, I will make mistakes in loving you. I'm going to forget your birthday sometime. I'm going to forget all kinds of things that you think I should remember. I, I'm going to overlook you at times. I'm going to say things that hurt your feelings. I'm going to let you down. But, but I want to make you one promise. I, I want to promise you that my mistakes will be mistakes of the head. You'll think, my goodness, what was Brother Tim thinking? My goodness, where is his head? You'll think that a lot probably by the end of this sermon you're going to sometimes wonder where my head is, but I pray that you never have to wonder where my heart is. My mistakes should be mistakes of the head simply because I really am a doofus. I, I, I really am not that smart. I'm not smart enough to keep up with all of you and not smart enough sometimes to understand how my words or my actions may, may hurt you. But in those moments, I pray they're mistakes of the head, not mistakes of the heart. Because we're supposed to be a family of Christians. We're supposed to be a community of believers bound together in love. But not just love. And this is where some people fall off the boat right here. They think that it's only about love. But it's not just that we as followers of Christ walk in love. We also walk in truth. We walk in love and we walk in truth. And this is where it gets difficult. I long to be a preacher of truth. I want to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And for me, the truth is found in Christ, and the truth is found in God's word. I want to preach the truth. And I try to preach the truth. But I know that sometimes, in my boneheadedness, I have preached the truth without love. And somehow when truth and love get disconnected, when truth and love are no longer holding hands in, in, in our body, then all of a sudden something goes wrong. 
It is not enough to walk in the love without truth, but it's also not enough to walk in the truth without love. And often as a pastor, I've hurt people because I preached the truth, but I did not do it from the kind of heart of love that, that, that I should have preached the truth from. Do you understand what I'm saying? Truth and love always go together. I would say that what we need more than anything is is a healthy dose of conviction and compassion. They have to go together. I, I may preach and I will always preach against sin because I have strong convictions, biblical convictions about sin and the consequences of sin in people's lives. I will preach against sin, but I hope that as I preach from those strong convictions, I also always preach with a strong heart of compassion. Conviction and compassion go together. It's not enough to preach against people having sex outside of marriage. You've got to somehow communicate the love and compassion for people who live lives of brokenness and emptiness and and the failure of love in their lives. You have to always combine conviction and compassion. As churches, as preachers, often we have preached heavy doses of truth, but we've not managed to balance that with heavy doses of compassion. And in those moments, we were in error We may have been true enough, but we did not love enough. And we have to walk in truth and love. Conviction and compassion go together. It's one thing to sit off in a corner somewhere and discuss issues. We can talk about the issue of abortion. We can talk about the issue of homosexuality. We can talk about the issue of couples living together outside of marriage. But don't you understand? These aren't issues. And if they're only issues to you, if you're only interested in getting at the truth, but not interested in loving people, in loving young girls who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy, if you're not interested in loving real people who struggle with their sexuality, if you're not interested in loving real couples who haven't yet figured out what it means to love and commit, then I'm telling you, you can't really walk in truth and love. These go together. We don't just talk about moral issues. It's always about people. People for whom Jesus died. People whom God loves. Am I against abortion? Absolutely. But when I preach against abortion, I hope that any woman who has ever, ever suffered such a thing or any person who might ever contemplate that choice, I hope they hear the truth, but I also hope they experience the love of Christ, even as the truth is preached. When those in this church or those in the sound of my voice who struggle with their sexuality, who struggle with their sexual orientation, I hope that as you hear me preach what the Bible says about homosexuality, I hope you understand that I love you. And I'm not afraid of your sexuality. And I really, really would love to help you find wholeness and completeness in your life and your relationships. These aren't issues. It's people. That's why we always combine conviction, strong conviction, biblical conviction. We always combine that with compassion. Because truth and love among Christians always walk together. Truth and love. Always walk together. John says, I'm glad you walk in love. But there's some things you need to consider about the truth. 
John focuses on truth in this letter because truth is the issue here. These people love one another well. As a matter of fact, they're very generous and very open-hearted. And that's why they could be taken advantage of. That's John's concern. And their desire to love everybody and accept everybody, there are certain people who are coming in whose messages should not be accepted. And John wants to teach the church to draw some healthy boundaries. And the boundaries occur around issues related to truth. And as Woodburn Baptist Church, it's a church that I hope is always a huge-hearted, generous, accepting church, we also need to remember that we have to draw some boundaries related to truth. We do not get to trade on truth. We must always adhere to the truth. Notice what, notice what the scripture says right from the beginning. What does the scripture say about truth? Verse 2, because the truth lives in us and the truth will, say the words, be with us forever. The truth lives in us and the truth will be with us forever. I love that. I ask you to underline that in your Bible because these are words that the, that the world today doesn't quite understand or relate to anymore. The, the world, the society around us doesn't really comprehend that truth is something that can stay around forever, that it does not change. We like to think that the truth might change. We often like to think that we can even redefine truth as we go along in our lives. We like to redefine truth in ways that always flatter ourselves and make our lives more convenient. That's why you have teenagers these days who talk about, I heard a teenager talk to his youth pastor and was talking about people having sex out of marriage and said, I know when you were, when you were my age that was wrong. Did you understand? With people who really think that morality sort of comes in and out of fashion or that when I was young, the rules I lived by are not necessarily the rules that our sons and daughters have to live by. As if somehow truth changes. As if somehow truth is subject to a, a public opinion poll. As if we can all vote on it and if we're not in favor of it, we can change what the rules are. No, no. Scripture says that truth lives in us and it remains with us forever. Truth is forever. The, the truth that comes from Scripture, the truth that comes in Christ, it is forever. It is not changing. If you find yourself on the backside of biblical truth, guess what? The Bible is not going to change for you. The rules are not going to be rewritten for you. Truth remains. It, it just stays. And if you don't like it, that's going to be your problem. But the truth is not going to change. It does not matter how far away from biblical truth the whole world moves. It does not matter if very quickly we find ourselves in a very, very, uh, very small minority of the population. We don't get to change what the Bible says. We don't get to ignore it. We don't get to preach anything different. Truth is truth, and it abides in us forever, the Scriptures say. Do you understand what the Scripture means there? It doesn't change. It doesn't change. It doesn't go out of style. It's not old-fashioned. It's just truth. Explain that to your kids, please. It does not change. Beyond that, according to John, there are people that are just right and there are people that are just wrong. Boy, we don't talk like that in our day. Oprah never says that. I'm telling you, in our day and age, everybody's just supposed to be kind of right. 
You know, we never could say that anybody's just wrong, but Scripture never really holds back from that. John doesn't have any problem in saying, listen, there are certain preachers and teachers that come by, and you need to lock the door and act like you're not home. That's what he's saying. There are certain people that what they're preaching and teaching, it's just wrong. And you don't need to apologize for thinking that it's wrong. And you certainly don't need to support them and send them on their way. They're wrong, John says. It's just wrong. My goodness. It must have been wonderful back in the day when the preachers could preach like that. But these days, if you say people are wrong, people are going to oppose you. If you start standing up and saying, no, there is right and there is wrong, there are lines that we cannot cross, I'm telling you, people will not accept that message today. Folks, these days like to simply think that what's true for you is fine and what's true for you is is just fine and we don't ever really have to agree on truth. Everybody can just go their own way. All paths eventually will lead to God. That's crazy. That's crazy. That is not true. Simply not true. Obviously. Some people are right, and some people are going to be wrong. doesn't mean we hate them. It doesn't mean that we don't reach out to them in love. It just simply means they're wrong. In definitions of truth, some are going to know the truth and follow it. Some are not going to know the truth and not follow it. And therefore, you can always say who's right and who's wrong. There is truth, and truth is truth whether you believe it or not. Truth is truth whether you accept it or not. Truth is truth whether you like it or not. It's not a matter of what you believe and what I believe. It's a matter of what God says is true. It does not change. And it really doesn't matter what you believe. In in that regard, it's still going to be true whether you like it or not. It's true. As Christians, as folks who love the Bible and read the Bible, in reading 2 John today, don't you understand That for us, truth comes down to Jesus, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself is truth. Maybe you can understand how God, in all eternity, God who wanted to express love to the world, he took on flesh and came and was born. And and that's who Jesus was, God in the flesh, God's love in flesh. Well, he's not just love in the flesh, it's also God's truth. God wanted us all to understand what is right and what is wrong. God wanted us to understand his mind, his way, and so God himself took on flesh. He became truth in the flesh, and that truth in the flesh is Jesus. And that is why for all of us, for the whole world, if you want to know what real truth is, you need to know Jesus. And if we want to tell people what truth is about, we have to talk to people about Jesus. Now you may agree or disagree with me, but if I'm preaching Jesus, I'm preaching truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. And that's why John draws the line exactly where he does. I mean, honestly, there's so many preachers and teachers out there, and everybody's got their own book to write. Everybody's got their own angle on things. Everybody preaches a little bit different, and a lot of people use the very same words. They use the very same words. And so it's difficult sometimes to understand who's, who's telling me the truth, who's preaching false. My goodness, he still talks about Jesus so much. Certainly he's telling the truth, and I'm telling you it's not always that simple. Not that simple. Notice where John draws the line. I say this because, verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. That's John's word. 
When John wants to talk about false teaching, he talks about the spirit of antichrist. In other words, anything that runs counter to Christ, anything that opposes the message, the gospel of Christ, it's antichrist, and we must judge it and we must reject it. Everything comes down to Jesus. So quickly, you might write some things down here. What do you need to believe about Jesus? What do you need to believe about Jesus? Really rather simply, number one, he was fully human. Jesus was fully human. I know that sounds simple, but honestly, there are two places where people tend to to get off track on the truth about Jesus. The first place, he was fully human. Jesus was fully human. Notice again what John says. There are some people who deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. In John's day, this is where the false teachers tended to go wrong. They didn't preach that Jesus was human. They believed, some of them, that Jesus was some sort of spiritual being, some sort of spiritual entity who was never fully human like we are. And John says, Scripture says, if anybody ever denies that Jesus was a real human being, then they are the Antichrist. They're wrong. And you have to reject that message. Jesus was a fully human being, as human as I am, as human as you are. He was human, but he never sinned. He was fully human, but he was born of a virgin. He was exactly as you and I are. He was subject to temptation. He was subject to weakness, to hunger, to sleep. He needed everything that we need. He was fully human. If anybody begins to deny that, Scripture says, then they are no longer preaching the real gospel. Jesus was fully human. It's important. But as you preach that, you've also got to remember that Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully God. Now, in John's age, the false teachers typically taught that Jesus was not fully human. In our day and age, the false teachers tend to teach that Jesus wasn't fully God. That's the great, the, the great error of our day and age. These are the people who teach you that Jesus was, Jesus was really just a, a really good teacher, an exemplary human being, but, but not the Son of God. When you start claiming that Jesus is God, that's when people get offended. So just don't claim that. That's what the world would tell us. We can all agree that Jesus was just a good man, a a very, very good man who preached love and and love for neighbor and taking care of the poor and who preached a message of peacemaking and they just boiled Jesus down to a very, very good man, sort of like Gandhi or Mother Teresa. But Jesus was not just a, a really, really good man. Jesus was God in the flesh. God in the flesh who came down from heaven who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be saved. Jesus cannot be the Savior if he's not fully God and fully human. The gospel boils down to Jesus, and you must, must believe that he's fully God, fully human. This is what the scriptures say. So as you talk to people out in in your neighborhood, as as you encounter other people of other religions, and you sometimes wonder, are are we the same? What do we believe? Who's right? Who's wrong? I'll just tell you, the question always to ask is, what do they say about Jesus? I don't care what else they say. If you really want to get to it, just ask yourself, what do they say about Jesus? Take the Jehovah's Witness, for example. God bless them. Uh, I pick these Bibles up around here a lot. You guys have to learn what these are. New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. This is not the Bible as you know it. This is the Jehovah's Witness Bible. 
Again, I found this in our pews. Somebody must have thought this was the real thing. This is not the real thing. Jehovah's Witnesses are, are not Christians. You say, Brother Tim, how do you say that? Because I just simply ask, what do they say about Jesus? And do you know what they say about Jesus? Well, take this Jehovah's Witness Bible that looks just like your Bible. It's got 66 books, Genesis to Revelation. Just go to any verse. I go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, because that's a good verse about Jesus. And look at what it says. In the beginning, the Word was... And the word was with God, and the word was a God. Little g. The word was a God. Take a look at John 1, 1 in your Bible. It don't say a God, little g. The word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus was God's son. They believe that there is one God. Jehovah is his name. He did not have a son, Jesus. They believe that Jesus was actually the archangel Michael. I'm not making this up. What do they say about Jesus? He's not God's son. He's not the Savior. They do not believe in Jesus. They're not Christian. Do you understand that? I'm not being mean. I'm just telling you what the Bible says and how this group measures up with the Bible. They do not preach that Jesus is God's son. Back to the Mormons. What do they say about Jesus? You have no idea. Because they use all the same words. The Mormon missionaries at my house talked about God the Father. They talked about God the Father a lot, and we talk about God the Father. It took me a long time to understand that when they say God is the Father, they mean that. They mean that. They mean that God is the Father, and he has a wife, and they have sex, and we are their children. I don't have to make this stuff up, people. That's what they preach. That God is married and God has a wife. And they say that as God is, we will be one day just as, as we are, God used to be. They believe that God started out as a man like us, but he lived a very good Mormon life and he progressed his way to Godhood. So now he has his own planet. And one day, if you're a good Mormon man, you'll have your own planet and you'll have your wife and you'll have nothing to do but have sex and babies for eternity and fill that planet with people. And none of the women said amen. Yeah, it kind of stinks to be a woman in that religion when you think about it. It's probably why the idea of having so many wives is appealing. you got to fill up a planet. I'm not kidding. That's what they preach. It's, it's, it's what they believe. Jesus is not God's son. He's God's son in the same way that they also say that Lucifer is God's son and we are God's children. They don't preach what the Bible preaches. You understand what I'm saying? And you can get to it very quickly by just asking, what do they say about Jesus? Jesus is the dividing line of truth. Christian science, you run into those folks, they don't believe that Jesus was God's son. They don't even believe that Jesus was God. Jesus was a person in whom the Christ principle was evident, in whom the light, the Christ light shone. But the Christ light can shine in you and me too. Christian science, they don't believe uh, that, that Jesus died for sins. They don't believe that he rose from the dead. They don't believe he's coming back. They don't preach Jesus. Not as the Bible preaches Jesus. You think about Islam and our Muslim neighbors and you wonder what they believe. Don't we all talk about the same God. Maybe their God, Allah, is our God, God, and somehow we're all preaching the same thing. Well, what do they say about Jesus? Interestingly, he's not God's son, but he is a prophet, a really, really good prophet. Islam preaches that Jesus is a good prophet, but he really didn't die on the cross at all. They do believe he was born of a virgin, 
They also believe he's coming back, but you know what he's going to come back for? Jesus will come back to tell all the Christians to become Muslims. What do they say about Jesus? He's a good prophet, but Muhammad is a better prophet. You've got to ask what they say about Jesus. John says that there are some people who are just always going to stray from her. His word there is actually go beyond. There are people who want to go beyond Christ. And when they go past Christ, John says, you don't go with them. When they start preaching any word that goes past the letter of Scripture, when they go past the simple message of Christ, you don't go with them. You don't listen. You don't agree. You don't support. It's always the line of of Christ. So even among Christian pastors like me, you've always got to be discerning. You've got to listen through that filter of Christ. You can't just listen and accept everything that everybody says. You have to be thinking. You have to be drawing lines. You have to always be asking, what are they saying about Jesus, and are they preaching the truth? You always love. Of course you love, but you've always got to be concerned for what is true. What's true? I listen to guys all the time, some of whom I just can't go the whole way with. They may even be preaching a lot of Jesus. I'll say Benny Hinn, for example. He seems to get some things right about Jesus, but he throws in so much other that is not Jesus and is not in the Bible, and that's the part that worries me. I don't really know what to do about guys like him. He seems to get the part about Jesus right, but there's so much else thrown in. All of the word of faith stuff, all of the healing. Benny Hinn with his big old tall impossible Pentecostal hair who says that Jesus one day is going to show up on stage with him so you don't want to miss the show. I, I just don't know. He goes way past Jesus for me. The same thing for Joel Osteen, in my opinion. Joel Osteen is committed to never ever making people uncomfortable. He always wants to make you feel good. In that sense, I worry because Jesus didn't send us out with a great commission to go and make the world feel good. The great commission is to go and make followers of Jesus whose way was a way of the cross. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you take up your cross. Something tells me that won't always feel good. So I hear about that guy in Florida a while back that found the, the entire dead frog in a Diet Pepsi. He found a dead frog in a Pepsi. He actually said it didn't taste too bad until he found the frog. He was drinking the Pepsi, comes across an entire dead frog. And the guys like Benny Hinn, the guys I'm mentioning, the ones who go so far beyond Jesus, that's kind of how I feel. They may have the Jesus part right, but they slipped a dead frog in there on you. You know what I'm saying? They slip a dead frog. And so as a matter of fact, when people come and they hear them preach Jesus, they may still walk away because they're not exactly going to swallow that dead frog. Do you know what I'm saying? And it is wrong for us to slip in our own things. It's wrong for us, any preacher, any teacher, we don't get to go past the simple message of the gospel. We don't get to add to the Bible. We don't get to add to the Ten Commandments. We just simply don't get to do that. Because we are committed to two things. We're committed to walking in love, walking in truth. And Jesus is love, and Jesus is truth. John says, nothing pleases me more than to know that your children are walking in love and truth. As a congregation, Woodburn Baptist Church, I think the only thing that pleases God is the recognition that we, as his people, 
walking in love and truth. If anybody comes preaching anything other than Christ, me included, don't you listen. Don't you believe. You follow Christ. You follow the Bible. You're smart enough to read the Bible. You're smart enough to smell a rat. Anybody starts going beyond Christ, the scriptures say, you don't go with them. Anybody goes beyond Christ, don't go with them. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, truly it's heartbreaking. Because, Lord, if we really believe that truth is found only in you, O Christ, then there is a world of people who do not know the truth. Is a world of people, Lord, that we know that you love and whom we love as well. Somewhere out there, Lord, is a man who's now approaching the age of 35, 36.